right. Good morning. Good. Thank you. I don't know where you are. Apparently, a tall man used this uh, last week, so we're going to lower this to. I wish I was a tall guy. Don't, doesn't everyone, guys especially, want to be tall? Maybe some of you don't. But I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Luke 11, I want to say it's about page 869 in the Bibles under the chairs where you're at. 869, Luke chapter 11, it's the third gospel, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke. And uh, I like that song. The first time I ever heard it was last week. And uh, when we were singing it, and I've been listening to it this week on uh, online and uh, learning it. It's been a, been a blessing to me personally, that sentiment to know Jesus more. Uh, that's, that's kind of the point. And um, one of the things that we'll look at today is someone uh, asking Jesus how to pray. Because what they heard, what they saw, what they experienced in his presence as he prayed... They wanted. They did not yet know that he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. But already, just even seeing him through the lens as a man, a rabbi, they said, I'd like to pray like him. I'd like to approach God like he does. Now, of course, as our Messiah, as our Savior, as Peter would go on to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of the living God. That has so much more uh, meaning that's been invested in it. It's like the Lord's Prayer is perhaps um, the second most uh, well-known passage in all the scriptures, both for those in the church and outside the church, only to be surpassed by that one that is usually used at most funerals, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want Psalm 23. The Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, it goes on from there. Is, is one of the most uh, recognized passages or um, uh, sayings, if you may think of it that way, in all of the Western uh, history in the English-speaking world. I want to look at that with you um, in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 particularly, but we'll read all the way through verse 13, asking the Lord uh, to direct us, to bring uh, insight to our eyes, uh, understanding to our hearts, and a appetite that befits who we are addressing. Would you listen carefully as I read Luke 11, verse 1? Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, uh, his boldness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. Seek. 
and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if he asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's do that by your heads. Father in heaven, whatever in the world that means, Jesus, that we are asking for good things from you, our great creator and father, as Jesus now leads us to see, would you grant us your best? And apparently, as Jesus lays it out, there's nothing better than God, yourself, the Holy Spirit, indwelling, adopted sons and daughters, co-heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, who sits now already exalted on the throne. Grant that we may lay hold of our, our privileges as adopted sons and daughters, that we might learn how to pray, why to pray, the what, the manner, whatever it is you would teach us, oh, that you might correct and fill and infuse us with everything we need. And all of the things that have gotten in our way, we pray that they would become irrelevant. Only that we may get you, God. Open our eyes and help. In Jesus' name, amen. I decided to, um, earlier this summer, I was going to preach on prayer. And I'd like to look with you at the Lord's Prayer. It kind of got prompted by two things. One, one of the dear brothers, I'm not even sure if you're here yet today, I didn't look around. Uh, He said uh, to me one day, Oh, it was such a blessing, Pastor. I was praying that we would recite the Lord's Prayer in corporate worship this morning, and we did it, which if you, you know, we rarely do that. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why do we rarely recite the Lord's Prayer in some traditions, including my own? So I started, like, maybe we should examine the scriptures and see if there's something that we should consider corporately to understand or more highly value the Lord's Prayer. And just because we've seen it kind of used like uh, mechanically or robotically doesn't mean, like I have often said to you, as Martin Luther once said, abuse does not negate use, right? Uh, Right? And you have all of you have heard people robotically use the Lord's Prayer who you think, or maybe you know the backstory or the current story of their life, and you think, boy, if anyone can say that, including him, including her, what's the point? If anyone can misuse it, what's the point? That's the part of the reason I wanted to look at. The other one is my own mentor in the faith, a man who died in the 1800s, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. He once said this, I believe, I'd rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Hmm. Now, Charles Spurgeon actually started a college to teach people to preach. Or, you know, so that, this is quite striking when you consider all that this man accomplished in his lifetime. And, but just to think about that, I'd rather teach one man or one woman to, pre, to pray than ten people to preach. And in fact, as I look at this text, Luke 11, verse 1, think about if you've read the Gospels with, alongside me or uh, tangentially to me. It's very interesting as you think about what the disciples, those who followed Jesus, asked. They do never, you never find in any of the recorded uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not once do you hear them say, Lord, teach us to preach. Would you teach us how to cast out demons? Lord, teach us how to, to heal the lame, how to give sight. Would you teach us the mechanics of raising people from the dead? 
Lord, just help us to do something sensational like you're doing. They don't ask any of those things. The only recorded query like this, Lord, teach us to pray. Isn't that fascinating? Those who were closest to Jesus as he walked on this earth, the thing that they found most striking and most appealing was how he prayed. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, I want to say first off that just even saying that should in, in, involve all of us or invite all of us to say that however much of a prayer warrior or a super saint you or others might think that you are, uh, this allows us to diffuse the inclination of our heart to pretend in such a setting or in smaller settings that somehow we're deeply spiritual. <laughs> Anyone who would go to Jesus and would you teach us how to pray is acknowledging in front of all his, his mates, his mates, I'm not very good at praying. <laughs> now, that's a hard thing to admit. That's a hard thing to admit that you're not as spiritual maybe as your neighbor. Uh, in certain settings, that's difficult uh, to say. He, he, when you say, when you read that, teach us to pray, we may be done pretending that we're deeply spiritual or that we love our neighbor well or love uh, in, infuses everything we do, things like that. The second thing when he says, teach us, prayer is very simple. It's just talking to God. And if you think, well, well, if it's just talking to God, isn't it more important that you are authentically you? So is, is there really any room for correction, any room for teaching then, if really just being true to yourself is the key bit? Well, Jesus actually went on and instructed the people who asked, teach us to pray. Now, it's very clear as Jesus lived and as he teaches in the New Testament and Old, the Bible, God is very clear there's no room for hypocrisy. There's no room for pretense. You can't pretend against in front of God. You, prayer is not a performance, private or public. Do you understand? So you, you may think that you can pretend in front of your neighbor certain things, or even worse, you may think you can pretend certain things to God in how you pray. Maybe you were very ornate or very theological, trying to dupe God into getting, giving, having him give you what you really want. When in all reality, you can't, you can't dupe God. You can't deceive him. Now, you may for a time deceive your fellow man or woman, but you cannot ever deceive God. He knows the truth of the matter. So authenticity has its place. There's no place for lying in prayer. There's a different father of lies than the Heavenly Father. There's no room for lying, uh, and you do yourself much harm if you deceive yourself in your praying and maybe even your witness. So what's on... Let me put it this way... If you're thinking, the, part, the problem with authenticity, and maybe it's overplaying in our generation, is that as interesting as it is, as it might be what's on your mind, maybe you should ask, what's on his mind? Do you see the difference? It's, it's okay. Start with what's on your mind, perhaps. But actually, what is on his mind? In fact, as you look at how Jesus prayed, how he taught us to pray, he doesn't begin with what's on our minds, on our agendas, our daily bread, for instance our inclination to temptation, the, the threats against us, our need for forgiveness. All those things do spill out, but he begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. So he begins with what's on the Lord God's heart. And I think in that he recalibrates our praying. When you pray, say, Father. Verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And Jesus begins in verse 2. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father. 
when you pray, say, Father. Now, you know I, I read carefully when I read the Bible, and, and the New Testament uses Greek, and I know this is an English translation, so I have to go Southern once again. I know you guys are chuckling because you know what I'm going to say. Uh, when y'all pray, y'all must say, is what it actually says. Y'all is a second person plural. When y'all are praying, y'all must say. So part of what that means is uh, he's commanding something. It is a command. It is an instruction. But also he's saying prayer has a place privately and publicly. There's a place for prayer privately and publicly, according to Jesus. Now, I know in our time, in our culture, increasingly prayer is being kind of squeezed out of the public sphere, uh, and, and in public realm, and public places. But Jesus is saying, when y'all pray, pray this way. Because he had prayed in public, how else did the disciples hear him? If he only prayed in his closet, they would never have heard him. So he himself was a practicer of public prayer, and in fact is inviting corporate prayer, which is one of the beauties of memorizing the Lord's Prayer. It's one of the, maybe the only prayer, that we are able to pray, pray simultaneously with our eyes closed, all uniting our hearts on the very same themes, all agreeing, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Do you see? And, and the Bible says it is good when brothers and sisters dwell in harmony and unity, when they unite their hearts to the same direction, right? The glory of God, the needing of our, our bellies fed, and many other things. The disciples say, Lord, and they're right to do so. He's their master. He's their instructor. He's our guide. He's our friend. He's the son of the living God, the Messiah. What is the Lord's Prayer? I want to say three things about it. Real briefly-ish. <laughs> yeah, you heard that. Briefly-ish. <laughs> I get excited sometimes. So, you know, bear with me. The first one, though, is that the Lord's Prayer is not an incantation. Uh, maybe I'll give you all three so you can have hope that we're getting close to the end. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is not an incantation. The Lord's Prayer, secondly, is an invitation to intimacy. Not an incantation, but it is an invitation to intimacy. And then the Lord's Prayer, thirdly, is an inspiration to worship. In invitation to intimacy and an inspiration for worship. The Lord's Prayer is not a magical formula, folks. It's not like Harry Potter where there's spells that have to be said in the same way, in a certain manner. It's not the order of the words. It's not the specific words uh, that, that, is, that has its power. And it's nothing like the spiritualism of our day where prayer is really, like I think my, my mentor, uh, Professor Jaron Bars, who taught me much about evangelism, he said prayer is, is talking to God. Prayer is not about trying to feel better about ourselves. It's not some sort of like magical formula that you say that sort of soothes and calms your jittery nerves down. Now, it may do that, but it's not because of what you're saying. It's not the words. It's not the repetition of sort of uh, inherited uh, phraseology that you've heard your grandma say. And so you see it works in her. And so it evokes some sort of nostalgic thing. It's, this is not the power of prayer. The reason this prayer has power is because who you're going to and how you're going to him as father. There's much... Uh, invested, what Jesus compresses in these very short, very ordinary set, uh, phrases is intense because it is a, a, a new revelation of how God can be approached and how he can and is approached through Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not some ritual, not some formula 
in that sort of way. Not the words, not the order. But it does have words in it, of course. There is an order to it. There is a form to it. And Jesus is, in this prayer, establishing a form or an order. Because he does say that in verse 2. Lord, teach us to pray. And he said to them, when you pray, say... And he says, lays out what we should say in our prayers. So he does lay out what to say, which is a beautiful thing. It's so ordinary, so beautiful, so marvelous. Still, millennia later, it's still captivating human attention. And I hope it will today, yours. When you pray, say. I, I take by that, it is appropriate. It is legitimate to memorize the text, to memorize the words of the Lord's Prayer, to recite it from memory. That has its place, especially when you're early in your faith. You don't know what to pray. You don't know how to pray. You're, you're awkward in your praying. Well, that's okay. That's fine. Start where this disciple was instructed to pray. Say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Start with that. It's like the basics of prayer. It is, and yet it's so profound. The basics are, are, are next level for every saint here. There's not one of us who have so plumbed the depths of the Lord's Prayer that we get it through and through. It still surprises us, still shocks us, what we are invited uh, to do to come to God so, with such intimacy, such informality, and yet also such reverence as our Father, not here, but in heaven, our Heavenly Father. But I do think it's appropriate to use this corporately, to recite it, uh, to, as I said earlier, to unite our hearts uh, together, to unite our mindsets together to hollow the name of the Lord, our God, our Father, that his kingdom may come. The Lord's Prayer does have a form and order. He does, Luke 11 does, it says this, teach us to pray. It does not say, teach us a prayer. Again, that's very important. Again, the, the recitation is important. It's like, it's like a form, it's a structure, it's a skeleton within, within which we invest the muscles and sinew and organs. We, we flesh it out, as it were. The outline is there. It's very simple, very simple. But take that simple outline and structure your praying, your approaching to God this man, in this way. It is not teach us a prayer, it is teach us to pray. And Matthew 6 makes this very clear, and I love Matthew 6, and I deliberately chose Matthew 11 for the, the, the text we'll use the next uh, couple, maybe eight Sundays. But um, Matthew 6 also records the Lord's Prayer. I mean, I'd like to read it to you, because you'll see that it uses different words in his Sermon on the Mount. Twice at least the Lord Jesus was instructing his disciples how to pray, uh, that too, they should pray. And in Matthew 6 verse 9 it says this, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, even then, right away, it's different. Luke records or says, Jesus says, you should say this, Father. Matthew 6, Jesus in his sermon says, you should pray, our Father. Okay, which is it? These are not competing things. He wants you to pray. These are structures. These are an outline, a form to, to guide your praying, to guide your approaching to God. Listen carefully. Again, Matthew 6, verse 9, pray then like this. Not pray this, but pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So if Jesus himself uh, has the liberty or feels the freedom to vary somewhat, his outline of prayer, may I suggest that you and I have every bit of freedom through Christ to also vary how we approach him in prayer. 
the way, the, the structure. We have to just flesh out uh, the structure that he's given, right? Pray like this. It's the Lord's Prayer. And an analogy would be for me, one of my sons is really into jazz, and I, I didn't know this, and I've never really understood jazz, but the more I've listened to it, the more I'm starting to get it. Not because I have a trained ear, but because I see what my son enjoys, and I'm coming to enjoy it myself. I, I see that jazz is different than what I learned in piano, where you had to play the exact, precise notes on the page at the right tempo, and if you deviate, even even a finger, right, Sally? You're in deep doo-doo. You did it, do it exactly right. But jazz is wonderful because it is an overall kind of melody. There's a chord structure. And you may start when you're a child, when you're in jazz, when you're starting to learn jazz, you may, because you don't know the first thing about improvising or how things should go, so you might play it exactly as you heard it, someone else play it. But jazz is intended for you to be always personal. Now, it may be inspirational. It may be unique when you play jazz, but it should always be personal. Do you see? You should always take the, the melodic line and the structure and the chord structure and obey the rules laid down, or as you get more advanced, only break them when you know you can break them or should break them. <laughs> I know, that blows my mind. How do you know when to break the rules? And no musician can tell me how. But anyways, uh, you're, you, that's what, this is kind of like that. Like, he's providing the key signature for you to pray because he invites you to pray to his father, our father. God is only Father through Christ. And that is the invitation we have to intimacy. So it may not be an incantation, but this prayer definitely is an invitation to intimacy. For he teaches us to pray, Father. Now I have to immediately qualify or correct two misunderstandings about that. Two misunderstandings. The first is this. Some branches of the church, as, as it has grown in decay and, and has gotten deviated from the fullness of Scripture, they will teach that, that, that this means that God is a father of everyone, that he's universally the father of every human being on the planet, that we are a universal brotherhood. And there is one or actually two verses in the whole Bible that do uh, uh, suggest that, but only in the specific sense of God being our creator. He's like a father in that he generates or, or he brings forth people. One of them is Malachi 2.10 where it says, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? So it's connecting father with creation. And, and by the way, the reason why this is, I need to correct this, is if you view this as, well, everyone can say our father. Everyone can approach God as father apart from Christ or with him. It doesn't matter. If you start approaching that way, think of this. If that's true, that every created person can approach God as father... That includes both his friends, his children, and his enemies. If everyone and everything that is brought forth by God as creator, that removes every hint of comfort this would bring to me, for even the demons are brought forth by God. Do you see? The universality of God as father, as generator, does not help us in our prayer because everything is made. Even the bumblebee, as my brother mentioned last week, can look to God as creator and father. But the comfort that I should have as his adopted son should be a great deal bigger than a bumblebee can ever attain. That is the first correction. That God is the father of all men naturally, maybe, as their creator. But the comfort comes to us by the lens or through the person of Christ... Through the blood of Christ, we are only invited to, and the Jews, even of his day, would never pray our Father. In fact, they were afraid to say God's name. They kind of did uh, linguistic uh, gymnastics to get around saying God's name. 
in prayer, and, and, or anything like that. And Jesus is inviting such a level of intimacy that it, it just blows the mind of the Jews of his day, however reverent they were, because he understood something. And we can understand many things through Christ. We approach our Father through Christ as a younger son, a younger, a younger sister, through Christ. John 8, 42, Jesus said this to the people who were with him at that time. And these were very religious people, people who knew the scriptures, if I may be bold, had more of it memorized than you and I did and do. But he said to these, these guys who had a lot of the scripture memorized, thought they had it under their belt, he said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he, that is the father, sent me. You are of your father, the devil. So that's the first correction, that there's a universal fatherhood, that everyone knows God and can approach God in this manner. That's not true. The second one is to impose on this God, our Father in heaven, the image, facsimile, the, 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 the faded likeness of an earthly father. That's part of the challenge that many of us have in praying our Father and looking to God as Father is we have baggage. I can't do any better than this guy named uh, Mr. Keller, Philip Keller. He wrote on Psalm 23, and he also wrote on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and I'm just going to read a paragraph or two because I think he's dead on and he can say it pointedly. Not all of us can pray to God as Father easily or with much sincerity, for it is a frightening fact that for many people the word Father does not denote a dear one. It does not conjure up the thought of a happy home. Rather, to them, it may well be repulsive and abhorrent. Many people have known only harsh, hard fathers. Their human father may have been selfish, a self-centered person who cared little for their well-being. He may have been a derelict, a drunkard, a dope addict, or some other distorted person who wrought havoc with their personalities in early childhood. How could you approach such an inconsistent one whose expectations you can't figure out? I, have you ever, I, I get invited as pastor into, into intimate settings often. Have you ever sat into a setting where it's clear that the children have no idea how to please their parents? Have you ever sat in such a situation? I've sat in times where, where the dad seems, or the mom seems eager to correct and you can see the children steal themselves so as not to let their countenance fall, especially with a guest present. I don't know if it's the parents like to show off or what it is, but they're kind of like, they're correcting their kids. Like, oh, you can do it a little more spiritually, honey. Just let me try. How about, how about acknowledging my impotent limping effort, Daddy. The father that Jesus paints is not like your father on earth. There is, I think, a reason why his earthly father, Joseph, is not mentioned apart from his birth at the very beginning. We don't know if he died or if he was a derelict and left. It is irrelevant in a way because the more important father to get in touch with is our heavenly father. That's what Jesus wants you to see. However much you have had those disappoint you who are above you, who should care for you, I understand that you might have um, things that are getting in your way, both as a human father or as the church. 
Uh, the church of Christ can certainly get in the way where you can see people make church about themselves somehow, selfishly, self-centeredly. A man seems to be again in the center. And who can handle that? Who can swallow such things? Jesus, however, takes us directly through his blood to God as Father. And what is Jesus' view of the Father? Listen to some of these things that he said. He talked more about God as Father than just about anything else. I think in 70 sometimes he addresses or directly or about his Father with that word Father. He uses the word probably in Aramaic, Abba, which means Daddy. In Greek it's Pater. In Aramaic it's, it's Daddy or Abba. He, he said things like this, John 5, 19. Jesus said to the people around him, truly, truly, which is a way of saying, I really mean this, or hey, pay attention to this thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Can you say that about your earthly father? Like, I'm so certain he's right, I'm on board 100% of the time. In fact, count me in, daddy, let's do this. Now, maybe you could at seven. <laughs> But you don't at 17. And if you're 47, you might start to think, well, he had some things he was on on. But there was some advice he gave that was a little, eh. Because he's fallible. But our Heavenly Father is infallible. Well, that is without error. He also said this. So Jesus not only treated his Father so, had such implicit trust in him that whatever the Father was about, he would join him in without any uh, hesitation. In John 12, Jesus goes on to say this. In John 12, 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. What to say, what to speak. Or some translations, what to say and how to say it. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me to do so. He's saying, I mean, can any of you imagine a father so good that you will say everything your father says without modification, without change of tone, without that simple mocking that we have as children, like my old man says, thus and such, right? I mean, the level of confident trust that Jesus has for his father is out of this world. He's pointing to us to a good, good father. One more, just to get your attention, one more time. Luke 18, 19, Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God the Father, right? God is a good, good father. In fact, he will say in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The level of unqualified, implicit, absolute trust that we see in Jesus, the confidence that he has in his father, the goodness of his father, he goes to the cross because his dad asked him to. Do you see that? Because his God, his father was good. Let me, quick applications. This, intim, this invitation to intimacy. If this is true that God is a father to us, a perfect father, a good father, it means that this will mean the end of fear because our dad's got it. It'll mean the end of loneliness or despair or bitterness or resentment because he's a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows in his holy dwelling. It will mean that the resource question, give me this day, I need help, I don't have what I need, I need something else, I need something more. Dad, do you have that? How much does our dad have here? There's an exhaustion to your dad's, your human father's resources. There's a limit to what he can handle. But our father in heaven owns how much? everything. <laughs> he owns it all. It is a small matter for him to redirect some resources your way. 
Maybe the real question is you're not ready for it. If our God is a father, then it fills up self-worth because suddenly now if he's your father, man, talk about a royal pedigree. Regardless of what you come from or who you are, what has been done to you or what you yourself have done, all of that is eliminated or sort of uh, uh, squeezed out through the cross where now you are a royal son, a royal daughter of the living God. It fills up your neighbor's worth too. It does say in Matthew 6, our father, not my father. Maybe Jesus is the only one who can truly say that. But we are invited through him to say our father. And lastly, is a trustworthy, he is a trustworthy and wise and good guide. Guide. My daddy knows. One of my favorite things when uh, most of us as dads have stories and, you know, you get your dad going and sometimes you're just, okay, that's enough, dad. <laughs> but I have to tell you one story. There's a gentleman here who might be baptizing his daughter today and he might have broke a man's arm when he was arm wrestling once. But nonetheless... My son said, my daddy's stronger than him. He once said that about it, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm not stronger than him. <laughs> but a child thinks such things. They think about their dad highly, right? They, they invest their dad with hope because dad fixes problems. Dad is stronger. Dad can help. Dad can mend. Dad's there for me if he's a good father, if he's at least a half-present father. What Jesus is saying, because our Father in heaven is perfect, he's all that, but it's never a lie. It's never a half-truth. He can break a man's arm. He can. He can heal a broken arm. He can. Our Father is awesome. Our Father is awesome. And that inspires us or invites us to worship as well. So he, if he's a good God, if he's loving and trustworthy and perfect, then this should awaken hope because this world and our bodies, our resources, this community that we're part of, this country that we're part of, this, this pedigree we have, whatever your background and heritage might be, all of these and can and are and will be redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. That one day we will see the Father in heaven. We'll see him without qualification as he really is. And here's the thing. No matter how exalted your view is, especially relative to people in the community or in the world, you will know your Father to be better than you yet know him. There's not a one of us who will not go to heaven and realize he was better than I ever imagined. He was gooder. Sorry, Jim. He was gooder than I ever thought he could be. <laughs> oh, what's the preposition? Uh, right? He, he's awesome. Awesome. Full of reverence and joy. My heart just can't contain it. We must sing to such a father. Who else is so amazing that he would give his one and only son? If he would give us his son, his only begotten one, will he withhold any good thing from us? No. And one day, not only will I be saved, will I be healed, will I be put together and set right, and everything evil made right and true, this world too. He'll come down, whether you're ready or not, and it, Jesus says it will be when you don't expect it. It'll be a surprise. He'll come down and he'll so transform this thing, this cosmos, this earth. It's called the new heavens and new earth where God has settled and made his home with us. A father forever. If it, it awakens hope, it also means selfishness must be destroyed. I mean, how can you, how can you, you can have a, temp, a temper tantrum or a give me this lollipop thing in the face of such a good father? 
it should inspire gushing. I think of like gratitude and joy. Like remember when they went into the promised land and, and they were they described it so beautifully or so poetically. Anyone who's dealt with weeds, uh, even recently, you might wish you were in such a land. What does it say? Flowing with milk and honey. Flowing with milk and honey. Or I like gushing with milk and honey. I think that given the greatness of our Father, the Almighty Father, that we should be a people who are gushing with gratitude and joy. Flowing with joy and gratitude. Uh, Now you may have been reluctant to go to, to our Father in heaven to pray to him. I just want to urge you that you read things like the prodigal son. Remember the father was a beautiful father that Jesus describes in Luke 15, I think it is. And one of the sons didn't, actually neither of the sons really got, got their father. But the one took all the stuff and ran. And then he comes back. And what does the father do? He embraces his prodigal son and he restores them. Uh, A.W. Pink, a preacher right around the turn of the century, 1900 turn of the century, said, uh, it's our privilege to assure the most ungodly and abandoned people to their sins, that if they will be th- but throw down the weapons of their warfare, their resistance to God, just as that prodigal did, did, there is a loving father who is ready to welcome him, to welcome them. I want to invite you to pray corporately and publicly the Lord's Prayer as we learn together. So I wonder if we can pray together. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. By now you have thought some with me on the Lord's Prayer. Maybe as we pray it now, you'll think about it with a little bit different lens. Uh, pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 